millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I want to start this week by thanking my new donators on Patreon, Tish and Sari, and all of my regular donators as well. You do so much to help support this show, and I am so grateful to you all. If you'd like to become one of these patrons and become one of my absolute favourite people in the entire world, then head to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast, where you can find all the information you need. You can start from as little as $1 a month, and trust me, it makes so much difference. You can get all the latest updates from the show on my Facebook page, Queens of England podcast, on Twitter at, at Queens podcast, or you can ask me questions or anything else at my email address, queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 47, Anne of Cleves, The Second Choice. commonly asked questions whenever you tell someone that you're an enthusiast of Henry VIII and his six wives, something I'm sure that many of you must say on a daily basis, is this, who's your favourite? Indeed, the website Tudor Times recently did a straw poll of various Tudor experts and writers and asked them all who their favourite was. I've put a link to it in the show notes. Catherine of Aragon is the traditionalist choice. Anne Boleyn is the feminist choice. Catherine Parr is the mature choice. Catherine Howard is really no one's choice. Anne of Cleves, though, she, I would argue, is the hipster choice. She's the one that people say when they want to sound different, intelligent, the queen you like but no one else has heard of. Not, of course, that they are wrong to choose her. She's a very valid candidate for so subjective a question. She was Henry's shortest reigned queen, only on the throne for six rather unhappy months, but she would become Henry's last living wife. She can lay a claim to being, after Jane Seymour, Henry's most popular bride, as she moved the times expertly, surviving and thriving in the reigns of his wildly politically and religiously divergent children. Yet, most people know almost nothing about her. Ask the average man in the street, and probably the only fact they'll know about her is that she was ugly, that the painter made her look more beautiful than she actually was. They may even come up with a phrase, the Flanders mare, if they are more knowledgeable than most. And yet, there is so much more to say about this woman, who managed to not only survive a Henrican rejection, which proved fatal to so many, but also the reign of Mary Tudor, despite her living her whole life in opposition to Rome. 
Her story is one of complex diplomacy, artistic license, nocturnal emissions, skilled political manoeuvrings, and, above all, survival. The way I'm going to structure this mini-series in Anne is to split it into two. This first part will look at the negotiations that saw Anne finally become the king's choice for a new wife, and her fateful first meeting with Henry. If you are a fan of the hugely unromantic world of the international marriage market, then this is your lucky day, because I'm going to go into it in great detail, because it's been a while since we had a foreign bride. Plus, it all becomes super important when the whole thing falls apart. Then, the second part in two weeks, we'll deal with the end of the marriage and Anne's later life in England, which will take us way forward into the reign of Mary Tudor. So, that's exciting. There's a lot to say, only two episodes to say it in, so let's get going. Following the death of Jane Seymour, Henry waited over two years before remarrying. The desperation behind his search for a son had abated with the birth of Edward. He now had what he had always wanted, a healthy son and heir. He also had no great romantic urges at the time, no woman waiting on the sidelines that had meant immediate remarriage after he had annulled his two previous unions. Equally, he did not have any pressing foreign policy concerns. His ardent desire to make a name for himself on the continent that had driven his foreign policy in the early years of his reign had largely dissipated. He was no longer a young, healthy, strapping young man. He was late into middle age by the standards of the time. His health was not what it once was. The kingdom was at peace, and there was no immediate prospect of making it larger. This meant that things could move at a more normal pace when it came to the king remarriage, but there was equally little doubt that it was necessary for the king to remarry before too long. For this, there are two reasons. The first is foreign policy. While, as I said, there was no pressing need initially, England could not afford to become too cut off from the disputes on the continent between the two great rulers of the age, Emperor Charles V and the French King Francis I. While the two agreed on little, neither had much time for the heretical monarch ruling to the north. Thomas Cromwell knew that England must therefore ally with some of Europe's emerging Protestant and reformist realms in order to avoid being swallowed up. This married nicely with his own religious ideology, but it's important to remember, and I will remind you quite a lot, that while he was an excommunicate and had spent a decade waging war on the Pope and religious houses, Henry did not consider himself a Protestant. Cromwell would forget this to his peril. The other reason for remarrying was dynastic. Henry had a son, yes, but that was it. His two other legitimate children, his daughters Mary and Elizabeth, had been declared illegitimate. Henry also knew better than most how fickle the Reaper could be when it came to royal heirs. He himself had come to the throne thanks to the death of his elder brother Arthur. There was nothing to suggest that the same would not happen to Edward. In short, he had his heir, he needed the spare. Henry so far had married three women, as you know. Two of them were English-born, and one foreign-born. As I've said a few times, this was not the optimum choice. Domestic queens brought you very little, unless you're in the period of civil strife, as their dowries, if they existed at all, were pretty pitiful. Elizabeth of York, while a domestic queen, was a good choice, as it meant marriage into the defeated house in a civil war. Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Boleyn, however, were far more problematic, as they gave nothing diplomatically, offered nothing in terms of dowry, and yet were so unpopular that they caused far more problems than they solved. Foreign brides offered the prospect of an alliance, peace and profit, all things that were greatly appealing to kings and their ministers. Therefore, with England in danger of isolation in Europe, and the succession still far from secure, 
Cromwell, still the man who ran things in Henry's government, looked abroad to find his master a brand new bride. The first problem that Henry's chief minister faced was a relatively sparse pool of options. When you're a king who considers himself to be pretty top turkey, looking abroad for a suitable wife, especially if you want her to produce heirs, you necessarily find yourself with a pretty short list. When you add into the fact that he was excommunicated, well then it really was slim pickings. Very soon after Jane Seymour's unexpected death, Cromwell, with the consent of Henry VIII, instructed his men on the continent to begin drawing up a list of suitable brides for Henry to consider marrying. Now, any attempt to do this becomes not so much a list of women with characters that may be compatible with the king, but a list of territories that may be won. A transfer market, where land, wealth and influence played far more of a role than the woman herself. One option that emerged was Mary of Guise, the daughter of the arguably most powerful nobleman in France. Though really that had a lot more to do with messing up the Franco-Scottish alliance, as she was the preferred marital choice of the Scottish king, James V, who would eventually marry her. The initial list of four potential brides lined up for Henry, once the prospect of marrying Mary of Guise fell through, all came from the imperial side of Europe. The first was Margaretha van Brederode, the daughter of one of Charles V's top generals, but she was a little young, and her beauty was only described as being, quote, competent. And she was also related to the Yorkist Pole family. Second was Frances van Luxemburg, another girl from a prominent and very wealthy Dutch family. By contrast to Margaretha, she was 40 years old, but still considered beautiful enough to entice Henry. However, 40 was way too old to be considered a viable mother of future heirs, so she was also out. Third was Christina of Denmark, who had recently been Duchess of Milan until her husband's death. She was another young lady, in her mid to late teens when she was being considered as Henry's bride, but since she had already been married to an older man, this was not considered much of an impediment. And the fourth was, of course, the subject of this episode, Anne of Cleves. So we'll briefly put a pin in this list of potential brides and look at the woman who would eventually become Henry's wife. Anne was born on the 22nd of September 1515 at Dusseldorf in Cleves, a city that is now in the very northwest corner of Germany, but was then a duchy within the Holy Roman Empire. She was the second of four children born to Duke John of Cleves and his wife Maria. Though she was not a princess herself, her royal lineage was impeccable. Indeed, Elizabeth Norton, in her biography of Anne, claims that she had the most noble lineage of any of Henry's wives. Through a daughter of Edward I, she was descended from the line of both the English and French kings. Her links, though, were far closer to the French side, as she was closely related to the former French king, Louis XII. The Duchy of Cleves was relatively small, but thanks to its close ties with the Burgundians, they punched well above their weight diplomatically. In terms of religion, this was an era of great flux, as princes around Europe flirted with the reforming ideas of Luther, Calvin and the rest. Some have rather erroneously suggested that Anne of Cleves was brought up a Protestant, but this was not the case. Much like with Henry VIII, being a religious reformer did not necessarily make you a Lutheran, and this was the case with her father. He was a follower of Erasmus, and so tended to the kind of humanism favoured by Anne Boleyn. He was no fan of the Pope, but he was equally no reforming zealot. In this kind of religious third way, he was a kindred spirit of Henry VIII. Anne's mother, Maria, was a wealthy heiress, but she was no Eleanor of Aquitaine. She was quite willing for her husband to rule the lands that she brought to the marriage. 
As the mother of three daughters, Maria saw one of her most important roles to be the raising of these three girls to be perfect wives for German princes. This meant a very strict upbringing, as all were being trained to be good, obedient wives. Nicholas Hutton, the English ambassador to the Low Countries, said of Anne, quote, "...hath from her childhood been brought up with the Lady Duchess, her mother, and in manner never far from her elbow, the Lady Duchess being a wise lady, and one that very strictly looketh to her children. All the gentlemen of the court and others that I have asked of report her to be of very lovely and gentle condition, by which she hath so much won her mother's favour that she is very loath to suffer her to depart from her." This rather restricted upbringing also limited her education, making her one of Henry's least intellectual and educated wives. She only spoke German, not even French or Latin, much less English. Indeed, this very strict upbringing and limited education reminds me very much of Jane Seymour. Henry was a man who was very attracted to clever, well-educated women. But he had learned the hard way, too, that clever women were far harder for him to dominate. They didn't always let him get his own way. Now, Anne was not running around the Cleves court with a pointy hat with a big D on it. Indeed, she was described as having a ready wit and showed an aptitude for learning. But one may argue that she was not of the same intellectual calibre, at least by nurture, if not nature, as many of the great queens of Europe. Of her sisters, the first, Sibylla, married the heir to the powerful Duke of Saxony, a powerful and hyper-Lutheran German duchy. This was an excellent match and would be very hard for her sisters to follow. Not long after, in 1527, so when she was about 12, Anne's father found her a future husband. She was betrothed to Francis, the heir to the Duchy of Lorraine, a nearby duchy on the Franco-Imperial border. Now this was all very complicated and political, so I won't trouble you with details, but what is important for our story is that, while they were betrothed, neither of them were ever asked to give their consent. This meant there was never a legally binding match, and so, when the political landscape shifted and the match was no longer desirable, everyone was able to retreat from it unscathed. So, it was the single and free woman that Anne first caught the attention of Henry's ambassador Hutton when he began casting around the northern reaches of the empire, looking for a new wife for the king. His first impression, that he sent back to Cromwell, was far from a rave review. Quote, The Duke of Cleves has a daughter, but there is no great praise, either of her personage or her beauty. Ouch. Quite understandably then, given this rather negative assessment, Anne was not at the top of the list when it came to drawing up the shortlist. The number one contender was, in fact, Christina of Denmark, Dowager Duchess of Milan. Now, the thing that made her the most attractive was, of course, not her looks, but her inheritance, because she was the daughter of the deposed King of Denmark and had a strong claim to the throne. She had relinquished this when she married the Duke of Milan, but Cromwell smelled a chance to win the Danish crown for Henry with the marriage to Christina. To cap it all off, she was also beautiful, but there was one slight hiccup. She did not want to marry Henry, and neither was it the wish of her guardian, Mary of Hungary. She is reported to have made the following sick burn of her suitor. Quote, If I had two heads, one should be at the King of England's disposal. Mary of Hungary, who was a niece of Catherine of Aragon, because it seems everyone was, wrote at the time of Henry's marriage to Jane Seymour, quote, It is to be hoped, if one can hope anything from such a man, that when he is tired of this wife, he will find some better way of getting rid of her. Women, I think, would hardly be pleased if such customs became general, and with good reason. 
Christina, as befitted the number one contender, was the first woman to whom Henry's preferred artist Hans Holbein was sent to paint a likeness. This was considered a vital part of the process. While in the past, kings had been content to marry blind, Henry had no intention of doing so. It was impractical for him to gallivant around Europe, calling on eligible women, so this was the next best thing. Of course, normally portrait artists would give a generous likeness, emphasise the good bits and airbrush out the wrinkles. This time, though, Holbein had been instructed to give a true likeness, so that Henry could make his decision with all the facts. Holbein's portrait of Christina was a great success, and everyone appears to have both agreed that it was a good likeness and that she was suitably beautiful for Henry. If you're interested, it currently hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in London, and I've put a link to it in the show notes. Portraits were also painted of some of the other ladies who had recently come to English attention, not only by Holbein, but also other artists like Hobie as well. Likenesses were sent to England of Renée of Guise, a sister of Mary, as well as her cousin Anne, who was the daughter of the Duke of Lorraine. There was also Mary de Verdun, another cousin. So now the pool of candidates seemed evenly split between France and the Empire. After all of this, though, Christina was still the king's favourite, and so Cromwell started to focus his diplomatic efforts in obtaining the marriage of this reluctant bride. To obtain her hand, he would need the support of both Charles V and her guardian Mary of Hungary, and it all boiled down to the crown of Denmark. It was also tied up with the negotiations for his daughter Mary Tudor to be married to a Portuguese prince, and it all started to resemble the negotiations for Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, lots and lots of disputes about money and nitty-gritty detail. As I said before, Mary was far from keen about this marriage, and basically hoped that if she could stall it for long enough, it would just go away. Charles, too, was not overly keen about Henry marrying such an influential and powerful woman, especially when... In December 1538, the Pope reaffirmed his excommunication. Then, in January 1539, Francis and Charles signed the Treaty of Toledo, agreeing that neither would make any deals with Henry without the others' say-so. This all effectively meant that this potential remarriage was dead in the water, and suddenly England was looking dangerously isolated in Europe, with there even being the danger of the Pope declaring a holy war against him, with Cardinal Pole leading the charge. Pole was the grandson of George, Duke of Clarence, the hapless brother of the Yorkist kings, Edward IV and Richard III, and his position as cardinal meant that if he made a tilt at the throne, he was likely to get heavy papal support. This made the search for a new wife all the more vital, and so now attention shifted to the number two contender, Anne of Cleves. The last time we saw her was in 1537, and the English ambassador had said that she was neither beautiful nor of great personage. The following year, she came to Cromwell's attention again, this time on the suggestion of the Vice-Chancellor of Saxony, who was in England looking for support for the Schmalkaldic League, a defensive alliance of reformist and Lutheran German princes against the Emperor. Again, this in the end got put on the back burner because of his desire to marry Christina, but once spurned there, he returned his attentions to Anne. Cleves's anti-papal stance was especially useful to Henry at this time. He wouldn't join their league, as Henry did not much approve of Lutheranism, but an alliance to Cleves and thus to the League was seen as being a particularly advantageous one politically, if not religiously. As the most eligible bride in the League, Anne would be the perfect person to cement this alliance. So, finally, we're getting somewhere, right? This marriage should all be agreed no problem. Of course not. The world of international politics was far too complicated and self-interested for that. I don't want to get more bogged down now than we already have in all of this, so I'll try to keep this bit fairly brief. 
Much like with the proposed marriage to Christina, Henry wanted to tie his marriage to one for his daughter Mary, and so he appointed a new ambassador, a man called Christopher Mont, and sent him to Cleves to begin negotiations to marry Mary to Anne of Cleves' brother William. Once he discussed this, Christopher was to, quote, diligently but secretly inquire of the beauty and qualities of the lady eldest of both daughters to the Duke of Cleves, as well what shape, stature, proportion and complexion she is of, as of her learning activities, behaviour and honest qualities. His orders go on to hint to the Duke that Henry was interested in marrying Anne. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And but as his delightfully worded instructions put it, quote, Nevertheless, not as demanding her, but as giving them a prick to stir them, to offer her as the noblest and highest honour that could come unto that noble house of Cleves. No one ever said that Henry didn't have an ego. In March, more ambassadors were dispatched to negotiate with Anne's brother, the new Duke, after the recent death of their father. This delegation seemed to be the first time that English eyes actually saw Anne, as previously they were always going on hearsay. Even so, initially they were only allowed to see her from a distance, hardly a good sign, and so when they were initially presented with portraits, they complained that they could hardly verify whether it was a good likeness, as they would have needed a telescope to compare it with Anne herself. This doesn't seem to be due to any particular worry about Anne's beauty, they could not find anyone at court who had anything but praise for it, more a concern on William's part that an alliance with England was not necessarily the right move. He basically messed these ambassadors around for months, sending them this way and that, all to delay proceedings while he tried to get the best possible deal for both his own marriage and that of his sister. He was also worried about Anne's availability to marry, given her previous betrothal to the Duke of Lorraine's son. When finally portraits were offered to the English ambassadors, they were offered ones not only of Anne, but also of her younger sister Amelia, despite the fact that they had not been interested in that match, as it offered far less advantage to Henry. When the Germans finally admitted to the English that there was a concern that Anne was not available to marry, it threw a great big spanner in the works. Henry sent a legal expert over to work out exactly what the situation was. He also dispatched Hans Holbein to the court. He was not willing to trust the word of the Germans on the beauty of any proposed wife of his. 
There, he would paint both Anne and Amelia, but the focus was still on the elder sister. Holbein rushed off the two portraits and showed them to the ambassadors, who confirmed that they were true likenesses. Sadly, the one of Amelia does not survive, but we do have the one of Anne, which I have also put in the show notes, and currently hangs in the Louvre in Paris. Now, this is a very important portrait, so if you'll forgive me a little bit of art criticism, I'll recommend that you click on the link if you can and look at it as I talk. It is a slightly unusual painting in that she is stood dead centre looking straight at the artist. She is dressed in the German style. It's about three-quarter scale, so it really would have given Henry a good impression of what his prospective bride would have looked like. Given the controversy at the later flare of, it's worth pointing out that there is no indication that Holbein deliberately sexed up this portrait. He was known for being an accurate artist, no one ever accused him of falsely representing Anne, and Henry continued to use him even after his divorce from her. Once the king saw it, he was immediately satisfied that she was good enough looking for him, and so the negotiations accelerated. Still, though, Duke William was reticent, as was Saxony, a major player in the league, who were unhappy that Henry would not convert to Lutheranism. In June, the English Parliament passed the Act of Six Articles, which laid out how Christian worship should be practised in England. This act was extremely conservative and essentially confirmed Henry as a religious conservative on many aspects of religion, rejecting Lutheran ideas on transubstantiation, clerical celibacy and confession, amongst other things. It basically confirmed England as being Roman Catholic, minus the Pope. That all said, this marriage was too advantageous to Cleves to be ignored forever, and eventually, at the end of summer 1539, German ambassadors arrived in London to properly thrash out an agreement. The English negotiators were, of course, led by Cromwell, and they were entertained lavishly at court. Henry was said to be in great form, still at heart the Renaissance prince of his youth, even though his health was not what it once was. No expense was spared in entertaining the guests with lavish feasts and entertainments, put on to impress upon the ambassadors just what an august and wealthy kingdom they were dealing with. In the negotiations, assurances were made that despite the contract with Lorraine, Anne was completely free to marry, and after just two weeks lightning speed by the usual standards of such things, an agreement was made and a treaty drawn up. A proxy marriage would take place in England, with two ambassadors representing Anne. William would pay for her journey to Calais, Henry would handle her voyage across the Channel. Next came the dowry. The Germans promised 100,000 florins, but a side agreement was made that Henry did not expect the money to be actually paid. Cleves was in financial trouble, and England needed the alliance more than the money. This allowed Cleves to save face, and England to claim that they had extracted a huge dowry for the bride, and just tactfully ignore the fact that it was never actually paid. Henry, on his part, promised to give her a dower lands worth 20,000 florins, that she would retain, should Henry predecease her, so long as she remained in the kingdom, or 15,000 florins, if she was childless and wanted to return home. This was all deemed acceptable to both sides, so the Germans went back home to get William's seal of approval, which was readily given, and so finally, 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 the question of Henry's fourth marriage was settled, it would be Anne of Cleves. Not that anyone actually asked the 24-year-old future queen what she thought about marrying the most notorious husband in Western Europe. Before we go on to talk about Anne's journey to England and her infamous first encounter with Henry, it's worth briefly talking about what everyone's expectation was for this marriage. For Anne, she expected to be treated with the respect due to her rank, to be made Queen of England and given all the things promised in the treaty in terms of a dower lands and pension, and to carry out her duty as a wife to her husband. For Henry, he wanted two things and two things only, more sons and for an ally to help guard him against an ever more hostile continent. For Duke William and the League, they too wanted an ally to help defend them against 
the resolutely anti-reformist powers that surrounded them, and there were some who also wanted to convert England and her King Henry to Lutheranism. Henry and Anne's aims, they were compatible. Henry and William's, well, not so much. Henry had no intention of converting to Protestantism. For him, any link between England and Cleves was purely defensive. More on that later. For now, though, the treaty was signed and everyone was happy. Now all there was to do was to get the bride over to England and make it all official. Now if you remember, part of the treaty had concerned who would pay for which parts of the journey, and that's because it was hugely expensive to bring a bride to her husband at this time. You couldn't just chuck her on a horse and give her a map to the coast. No, no. She had to travel in style. She had to have several hundred of her closest friends and family with her. There had to be attendants, servants, knights, and all manner of people, and all of them had to be fed, watered, and housed on their journey. And they wouldn't be in any particular hurry. This was not a military campaign. This was a travelling pageant. <coughs> now, Henry had been very keen to meet Anne before going through with the wedding. Let's not forget that he had known all three of his previous wives before marrying them. This was his first blind match, and he was an egotist that had standards of attractiveness and wit in the people that he married. It took quite a bit of persuasion that it was impractical to meet all the prospective candidates that I just mentioned. Even he, though, realised that it was impractical to meet Anne before the wedding. To do so, he would have to travel through imperial territory, and given the poor relations that he currently had with the emperor, that was a risk that was not worth taking. Anne, though, was given permission to travel through Charles's lands. As the bride-to-be did not speak English, and was not familiar with English customs, an advanced team of five was sent to accompany Anne on her journey to England, where they would give her a crash course in the language and culture of the kingdom of which she was about to become queen. Lavish preparations were made to greet her first at the English port of Calais, and the company across the channel, and then to greet her in London, where she was to meet her new husband. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about Anne's journey to Calais, because I don't want to get too bogged down, but despite the lack of money that Cleves had at the time, it was carried out with appropriate fanfare. Charles was good to his word, and sent a detachment of men under an earl to protect and guide her party through his lands. As she travelled through local towns, she was offered gifts, and there were parades put on her honour. It was all very grand. For Anne, this must have been a lot, because she never had before left her duchy. Yet, she acquitted herself fairly well when required to, especially at a feast thrown in her honour at Antwerp, her first formal reception as a queen. She may have had a very sheltered life so far, but she had been brought up to be a princess and a queen, so she knew what she was doing. After a slow journey, she arrived at Calais in early December. This was her first sight of English territory, and the city pulled out all the stops. She was greeted by the Governor of Calais, the Lord High Admiral of England, and 30 members of the King's household, including Thomas Seymour, the brother of the previous Queen. She was greeted with ceremonial cannon fire, a great company of well-dressed important people, and was given gifts. In the harbour, the fleet sent to pick her up was all dressed up too, with banners, streamers, and sailors in their best uniforms. It was an impressive sight, quite the change from her provincial life in Cleves. She was meant to sail the next day, but the weather turned foul, and so she was forced to wait. It seems, though, that this did not perturb her. She spent the time profitably, asking the Earl of Southampton to teach her the rules of a game called Scent that she had been told the king liked to play. Like I said, she had been brought up to be a pro at obedient and enthusiastic wifing. At this point, no one in the English party noticed that anything was amiss. No one wrote frantically back to England telling Henry that he was about to marry an ugly, boring, ill-educated woman. Indeed, it seemed that she charmed them completely. All the reports sent to England were favourable, which makes what happened later to her all the more curious. 
Her journey, though, was delayed because the weather was crappy and remained crappy all the way through Christmas, and so it was not until the 27th of December that she was finally able to set sail. The 50 ships in the English fleet took about 12 hours to cross the Channel, landing at Deal in Kent. Landing at Deal in Kent. She rested in the nearby castle, and a few hours later set off for London. This shows her eagerness to push on and meet her husband. She would have been well within her rights to rest for longer after such a tiring journey. Traversing the Channel in winter was never a good idea, and it was a rough trip. But no, she was determined to push on, and so travelled north in a storm of rain and hail. Welcome to England, Anne. Come for the crown, stay for the beach weather. Her journey was slow, and it took three days for her to travel the 50 miles or so to Rochester, where she would be spending New Year's. What she did not know is that Henry had prepared a little surprise for her there. The plan had been to meet Henry at Greenwich Palace in a few days, but Henry, being a giant man-child, was not satisfied with this, and so wanted to play a little prank. He would sneak into the Queen's chambers in disguise and surprise her. This was actually, to be fair, a time-honoured custom that kings would do to surprise their brides. Henry was very fond of this, frequently disguising himself with his friends and pranking his former wife Catherine of Aragon. It was a very carefully played game. The ladies would pretend to be confused and shocked by this transparent action, while the men would pretend that they didn't know that the ladies knew all along who they were. The men would then reveal their identities, and the women would pretend to be surprised. I imagine it was more fun than I just made it sound. Anyway, this is what Henry had planned. Unfortunately, no one had told Anne about this custom, and it was about to cost her big time. This is the Riothesley Chronicles account of what happened. I will warn you, this chronicler has a personal vendetta against full stops, so I'm going to be out of breath. Quote, On New Year's Day at afternoon, the King's Grace, with five of his privy chamber, being disguised with cloaks of marble with hoods that they should not be known, came privately to Rochester, and so went up to the chamber where the said Lady Anne looked out a window to see the bull-baiting that was that time in the court, and suddenly he embraced and kissed her, and showed her a token that the King had sent her for her New Year's gift, and she, being abashed, not knowing who it was, thanked him, and so he communed with her, but she regarded him little, but always looked out of the window on the bull-baiting, and so when the king perceived that she regarded his coming so little, he departed in another chamber, put off his cloak, and came in again in a coat of purple velvet, and when the lords and knights did see his grace, they did him reverence. And then she, perceiving the lords doing their duties, humbled her grace lowly to his majesty, and his grace saluted her again and so talked together lovingly, and after took her by the hand and led her into another chamber, where they solaced their graces that night, until Friday afternoon, and then his grace took his leave and departed thence. And breathe. This is one of five accounts of Anne and Henry's first meeting. Interestingly, the near-contemporary Hall's Chronicle merely states that they met, had a nice dinner, and then Henry left. The other accounts, though, that survive are more like the one I just read to you. Some focus on the fact that she didn't recognise Henry and rudely ignored him. Others say, the moment Henry saw her face, he was disappointed with what he saw, that she wasn't all she was meant to be cracked up to be in the fitness department. It seems that he was mostly unimpressed with what he saw from his chosen bride. If you remember all the way back to my first episode on Margaret of Anjou, then you may remember that she made a similar misstep when greeted by her disguised husband. Henry VI had dressed as a squire and done so with such skill that she didn't recognise him. In the end, she had to be told, and it was all rather embarrassing. Henry VIII, however, was nothing like his namesake ancestor, and did not regard this mistake on Anne's part so lightly. It does seem a little unfair to put too much blame on Anne's shoulders for this. This was not a practice that she was familiar with, and she had gone through a lot of onerous travel to get to this foreign land. However, as her biographer Elizabeth Norton writes, Quote, this was the worst possible start to their relationship. 
Anne's failure to recognise Henry shattered his romantic dreams, and in an instant she was no longer his beloved. Anne should, perhaps, have realised that the only man in England who had dared to kiss and embrace the king's fiance was the king himself, but she was not expecting him and had not received an education in chivalric romance. It wasn't just this that disappointed Henry. According to Thomas Cromwell, he had said before setting off that he was going to, quote, nourish love. On his return, he complained that, quote, nothing was as she was spoken of. Basically, she wasn't very attractive. Now, as I've said, no one noticed anything was amiss before she was greeted at Rochester, and the paintings made of her present a perfectly attractive-looking woman, comparable to any of Henry's wives. As I said, Holbein was not sacked for this portrait of her, which means that Henry could not have been too far misled by it. Part of the problem, it seems, was fashion. Henry's court had been dominated for years by that of France, mainly thanks to Anne Boleyn. This had set the highest standards, and the ladies of the court had striven to match them. Anne of Cleves, though, came from a rather unfashionable bit of the Low Countries, and so didn't match up. The French ambassador to the English court wrote this rather unflattering report of her just a few days after she arrived. Quote, the Queen of England has arrived, who, according to some who saw her close, is not so young as was expected, not so beautiful as everyone affirmed. She is tall and very assured in carriage and countenance, showing that in turn and vivacity of wits supplies the place of beauty. She brings from her brother's country twelve or fifteen damsels inferior in beauty even to their mistress, and dressed so heavily and so unbecomingly that they would be thought ugly even if they were beautiful. Some harsh burns there. The thing about her age is curious, because she's supposed to have looked about 30 or so to the English courtiers. But that was hardly a deal-breaker. Anne Boleyn had been older than that when she married Henry, and Jane Seymour was about 28. She apparently had dark skin, not the preferred fair, but then again so did Christina of Denmark, and Henry had been smitten by her. Her nose was longer than expected, but you don't throw up such a fuss over a slightly elongated appendage. Other people are far less critical, even praising of her appearance, but of course, only Henry's impression really mattered, and he was not happy. Now, there is another theory about why Henry was not happy with Anne that has absolutely nothing to do with her appearance. This theory concerns Anne's former betrothal to Francis of Lorraine. Now, Henry has formed with his wife's private commitments. Both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn had fallen foul of such things, and so it seems that he was firm that he needed physical proof of the break-off of her engagement to Francis. Duke William had promised this, but not delivered. This made Henry think this was all a ruse to force him into an alliance in exchange for a woman whom he wasn't 100% sure he could marry. Now, this theory is possible, I guess. I mean, the whole thing about the physical proof is true. But it doesn't account for the almost immediate negative impression that Henry seemed to have formed of her. His greeting of her had not been in private. It had been in front of a lot of people. And Henry felt great embarrassment. And Henry was not one who would take that sort of thing lightly. That said, it's not clear that everyone present would have thought that much was amiss. It does seem that they shared a meal together after the confusion being cleared up, and most initially put the whole thing down to a bit of cultural misunderstanding. This squares with the whole Chronicle's reading of the whole thing as being positive, he just selectively edited out the embarrassing bit. What no one seems to really talk about is what Anne's reaction to seeing Henry for the first time was. And indeed, this might have a lot to do with her earlier confusion. While Henry had had a portrait to consult before agreeing to marry Anne, she had seen nothing of him. She would have been given some information about him, and we know that she asked questions about him on her journey to England. These descriptions, though, would have been very flattering, and possibly out of date. Henry was a shadow of the physical, impressive specimen of his twenties and thirties. He was now fat, old beyond his forty-eight years, and hardly an object of desire for a woman almost half his age. 
is perhaps not surprising then that she did not recognise him. Henry is supposed to have said that before he met her, he had been told, quote, Both of her excellent beauty and virtuous conditions, I assure you I liked her so ill, and so far contrary to that she was praised, and that I was woe that she ever came to England. So whether it was her reaction to his little joke, her physical appearance, her fashion sense, or the ugliness of her attendance, the first meeting between Henry and Anne had been a total disaster. Henry could not wait to get out of there, and to give an earful to anyone responsible for the match, reserving special ire for Cromwell. The fact that the German delegation had not brought the proof that he desired only strengthened the desire to get out of this marriage before anyone said, I do. And since I like to end on a note when everything is up in the air, I will leave you here for this week. Tune in next time, when we will find out if Henry does indeed manage to prevent his marriage to Anne. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. And how this car crash of a marriage collapsed after only a few months, and led to the most predictable annulment in royal wedding history. That would not be the end of Anne of Cleves, though. She'll be sticking around in England and causing waves for many years to come. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save.